Hey there, Conquerors. This is the Conquering Columbus podcast, where we bring you the stories of everyone who is conquering their field here in our great city, from business and entrepreneurship to science, medicine, athletics, and more. As usual, we want to take a quick moment to thank some of our sponsors here on the show. And our first sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio, one of our sponsors, Social Ventures. They offer resources, programs, and accelerators on social enterprise, and they act as a primary network for social enterprise activity in central Ohio. You can learn more at socialventurescbus.com. That's socialventurescbus.com. And our next sponsor is FMX. FMX is a computerized maintenance management system that helps organizations accelerate their operational success. And FMX enables you to streamline processes, increase asset productivity, and turn actionable insights into meaningful results. If you'd like to learn more, check them out at their website, gofmx.com. That's G-O-F-M-X.com. And our last sponsor is the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is a local nonprofit that's committed to helping their partners build upon their strengths. They turn visions of what if into sustainable resources for the community. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus, this time off the cuff with uh, Tim Trad joining us as a guest interviewer again, and maybe not so much a guest interviewer anymore. He, he's going to be joining us more frequently on these episodes. Really excited to have you here, Tim, with us. Good, I'm stoked. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, and uh, we've got a great guest with us today, and I expect it's going to be a really, really fun episode. Uh, Tanisha Robinson, and Tanisha, or T, as most people call her, is a serial entrepreneur, founder, and the current CEO and founder of Wonder, a CBD-infused sparkling water brand. And T came up with the idea while working as the chief disruption officer for BrewDog. But when the BrewDog team was not ready to take the leap into the CD CBD market, excuse me, uh, T decided to forge ahead on her own. And prior to founding Wonder, T has founded or co-founded several other businesses, including a branding and website design company, a mobile ticketing company, and a clothing print company. We're really excited to have her here on the show today to talk about everything she's got going on. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, T. Thanks for having me, guys. Glad yeah. to be here. It's great to have you here as well. And uh, we appreciate you stopping in and, and joining us for this interview. But yeah, we were just talking a little bit about early life and you know, everything from AirPods to what you have going on today. But let's let's take a step back and take a moment to talk about everything leading up to today. You know, just any highlights along your life. Like what led you to this point? Yeah. So I grew up uh, mostly in a small town in Missouri, which is how we say it there. And I am the second of seven kids from a Mormon, huge Mormon family. Actually, not huge for the Mormons, but most people would see that as a huge family. You know, grew up in a pretty, like, restrictive environment. Mormons have a lot of rules. And uh, I didn't really feel like I fit in in my family or my small town or my church community or Liberty, Missouri is a lot, like, kind of mostly white evangelical. So it just wasn't really never kind of found quite, quite found my place. I think a couple key inflection points, though, were one, when AOL came out. 
you know, and the dial up and begging our dad to get us a second line. Most most people that listen to this probably won't even understand what I'm saying. But we'll, uh, we'll plug the noise for you. Right. Yeah. The noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, Sorry, Tim. Um, oh, I absolutely remember it. That was a huge yeah, Well, I'm yeah. talking about sorry for blaring into my mic and your ears getting blasted. <laughs> it's all good. So, but AOL was like this really powerful moment, and I and I still really think, uh, because it, it allowed me to connect with other weird kids in small towns like me. And it was the first time that tribes were beyond whatever you could find in your little town. And I think that's still like the huge upside of social media is that it allows people to convene with people like them sort of no matter their geography. It's also, there's also a lot of horrible yeah. shit that comes with the internet and trolls and anonymity. But I think for me in that moment, it was like a really powerful driver to connect and feel like that I, there was a place for me in this world and that I wasn't as like weird or as, as big of a misfit as I thought. It was just like, oh shit, I just don't fit in my small town and in my really conservative family. What was your first screen name? Do you remember it? Yeah, yeah. It was um, Queen 2-5. Okay. Uh, 25 was my sports number. And, uh, you know, and I just thought, like, I'm going to try to be, like, you know, this empowered person, even though I was, like, deeply insecure and super weird and super awkward. I just felt like, you know, my digital presence can be something mm-hmm. I imagine I might be one day. Do you remember yours? I think mine was slippery as a seal. And I think it was somebody, like, somebody in my family it had, like had slippery as a seal. Like, <laughs> they had, like, slippery as a seal 12, and I really liked that person, so I was, like, slippery as a seal 13. <laughs> mimic everything I did. don't remember mine at all. I honestly don't. I, you know, I think a lot of my, like, I remember There's no way Twitter. that's true. It's, I don't, I don't, it's like, <laughs> so don't remember. BB Freak One. I was all about basketball. And uh, apparently there was another BB Freak that beat me to it. So yeah. I was BB Freak One. Nice. And my dad, so my, I somehow, I don't remember how this worked, but I, I was able to create the account and I talked my dad into, like you said, please give us the internet. And somehow mine became the main account. So when my dad would call into AOL, he had to like use BB, BB freak, freak and I just remember him being irate at me for, for that. Um, but yeah, that was a, uh, that was mine. BB freak one. I mean, my parents, I was kind of in the family where my parents were like very internet adverse. So they like, wouldn't, it's not that they didn't use the internet, but they definitely very much so limited usage of the internet in our household. So I, I really didn't get to use like the home computer till I was like, I don't know, 14, 15. I was, I would sneak downstairs at night and try to like cover the machine. Cause you know, that yeah. like loud sound. Yeah. I mean, we, it was, it was heavily locked down yeah. and as one of seven kids, like, you know, it was hard to get time, but yeah, um, yeah I was like a flashlight reader under my covers. My okay. mom was one of those kind of book burning moms mm-hmm. at the school. Um, like no children should read brave new world or whatever. So that was really fun. Um, but thankfully I did like a side deal with my librarian cause my parents would check my library records oh, wow. to Holy make sure shit. I wasn't getting into Satanism and yeah. <laughs> or might that I might become a gay one day. And uh, they were real worried Books about will that. Do that <laughs> so I did a side deal with my librarian cause I just like was there all the time. So she would just let me take books and knew, knew that I would bring them back. Um, cause I was like, my parents are checking my shit, which was kind of sorry to take us off on that tangent. That's I think funny. I don't remember I like where it. we started, yeah, but AOL, I like AOL where we and belonging. Yeah. Right. That's a good one. Yeah. Good. I you, feel you, we had similar parents. Mine were very conservative. Yeah. as well yeah. and I had to sit in the hallway when they read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or watch the movie or something in my school because the similar reasons you know, she didn't want me to I roast my mom for it now we're very close yeah. but growing yeah. up there was like that we butted heads because she tried to over control us and when you say don't touch that thing any kid wants to touch the thing, Absolutely. you know, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, if she could have just laid off a little bit, I wouldn't have cared as much, yeah, but yeah. yeah, my life could not be more polar opposite. I think the only movie I was banned from was Jane Silent Bob. And really? I found a, found a way around that one. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I found ways around it as well. I had buddies with Sean down the street. I'd watch all the Ninja Turtles that I wasn't allowed to yeah, watch. We were uh, raised on Disney movies and musicals. So, but it's crazy because like musicals are extremely controversial and Disney too, right. and Disney too. And yet like that was like totally fine. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you think about the overall themes of Disney movies, like Aladdin is like a serial thief who yeah. like makes it big, yeah. you know? glorifying. And then uh, yeah. bestiality. That's yeah. what my mom said. That's why I couldn't watch Beauty and the Beast. Or like uh, another, like a musical is Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, where these dudes like kidnap these women and take them up to this cabin. <laughs> She's like, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> just watch so that. We're totally fine to watch that, but you know, couldn't watch uh, or read uh, Margaret Atwood. So. Whatever. Well, you know, if they sing in it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, what exactly. They're singing and dancing. <laughs> yeah, Who cares? Totally <laughs> so, so we're in Missouri, and <laughs> you Missouri. decide uh, 
you decided to head off to college. And if I remember right, I listened to you a talk from you a long time ago. I think you studied Japanese, maybe? Okay, so, um, well, in high school, I studied Spanish and German. And I realized I have, like, an ear... Uh, you know those people that can hear a thing on the radio and play it on a pick an instrument? I just have an ear for language, and so skipped to, like, years in Spanish and German in high school. But that's what you do when you have no friends is you, like, hang out and, you know, make friends uh, on AOL and, and learn another language. So, But I was 17 when I graduated from high school, and so my for Mormons, they believe that a woman's place is in the home, a woman's role, like, highest calling is to be a wife and a mother— so I didn't have, you know, when you're 17, you you can't just say, well, this is what I want to do. So I wanted to go to Wash U or Princeton, and my parents said, you're going to BYU, because now I know, in retrospect, that they suspected I might be a lesbian, mm-hmm. and they were going to just kind of shove me off to Utah to, to ensure my chance, or to secure my chances of finding a husband, which never, you know, which didn't happen. And I was always like, Mom, like, what poor man's life do you want to ruin to make him be married to me. I was like, just, it's like, if you want to be married to a man so bad, like arrange it. But like, I feel so bad for that dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so went to Brigham Young for a year. That was definitely not for me, even wider than my small town in Missouri. And then, um, so as soon as I could, I joined the army. Cause people are like, why in the fuck would you join the army? Like you're, you know, like I'm not really compliant with authority, but it was a more liberal alternative and an, option, an opportunity for me to take control of my education. So I signed up and to become an Arabic linguist. Bill Clinton was president. All was right with the world. There's a little shit going on in Bosnia, but you know, like it was a good way to get college money and assert independence and, and serve my country, right? Like just a good way to step into adulthood. And so I was in Arabic school at, but I did study Japanese for a year at BYU and um, which was great fun and um, really liked the, as a quick sidebar, like how rational um, the Asian languages are. Like, I think it's really nice. It's more math than language in some ways. So anyway, I went to Arabic, studied Arabic in Monterey, California. And then when I was in Arabic school, September 11th happened. And then it's like, you know, when you're sitting in the army and you know we're going to war, it's, it's just like, oh, fuck, I signed up for college money. And that's, you know, it's different for people that sign up now. But at the time, the vast majority of people I was in with had signed up for you know, to kind of take a step into a career, see the world and uh, college money, but certainly not to go to war. So that was a little, little crazy. Can't believe it's been almost 20 years now. Yeah, it's insane. So, so what happens at that point? You're sitting there, 9-11 happens. Um, you know, you're not, you're not in it for those particular reasons. What's going through your mind? And then what, how does that unfold? Well, I think, you know, at the time it's like, well, I, initially I was like, well, I'm an Arabic linguist and we're going to war with Afghanistan and I don't speak Urdu, so that doesn't have anything to do with me. Um, but then, you know, the whole weapons of mass destruction farce. So we got pulled into a war that we're still in. Um, I couldn't have imagined it would have gone on for 20 years. I think no one at the time thought that it would last for a generation. But, you know, I mean, I signed up to serve and, and so that was... I wasn't trying to get out or do anything. It was just, you know, but it changed the the terms of the commitment at the time. And, you know, I think for me, um, going through all the training I did and all the experiences I had, I learned a lot about great leadership and poor leadership and a lot about myself. You know, I think the great thing for the Army for me was it's the Army and the military is extremely objective, and so it is truly about, like, what are you capable of and, and how do you measure against these other people in, in these very clear tests of endurance physically and emotionally and, um, and mentally. And so, you know, it didn't matter that I was a woman. It didn't matter that I was black. It didn't matter that I was weird. It just mattered, like, that I was capable. And so that was a really powerful kind of moment for my self-esteem and for my sense of self overall, because I was like, okay, I am, you know, in training with some of the best in the world and am being measured and tested and I can, and I can hang. And so I realized I was far more capable, far more resilient, far more adaptable and much stronger than I had ever really realized. And, and, and then had to, you know, had the opportunity to have that really tested in profound and, and painful ways. But I think in retrospect, you know, people ask like, well, you know, if you could go back, would you still do it? And I absolutely would, um, knowing what I know now because of the human being it, it made me and, and how that applies 
in my life, you know, and, and, you know, people talk about right now in this COVID-19 fucking situation and there's so much uncertainty and people are so afraid. And in most scenarios in the army, you can be in situations where like the outcome is that you might die. And in COVID-19, that is kind of on a, a, a statistically a peripheral kind of possibility for some people um, in certain risk categories, but not that you have a 50-50 chance that you're going to die. And so I think... There's not bullets flying at you, no you bullets by the flying, door. Like nobody's shooting at you. Um, and not to kind of understate the seriousness of, of this um, pandemic, but I do think that my army experience has given me a very high tolerance for uncertainty um, and risk. Uh, but I think the reality is like, it's you just have to have a plan and then be willing to adapt to that plan on a constant and sometimes minute by minute basis. And I think that most people's lives don't prepare them to adapt. How long were you there? I was in for four years. Okay. Yeah. You know, there's so much in your life to unfold and unpack. I mean, you've had a lot of experiences. I'm curious to know though, as, as we're transitioning to the business side and you get, you get out of the army and the military and you go into the real world, you're sitting back and you have vast knowledge on different cultures and their languages. How did that prepare you and, and why business and how did that prepare you to go into business? Yeah. I mean, I didn't originally think that I was going to like be a business person, right? I think, what, so my, I, I've been an entrepreneur actually since I was really little because my family didn't have any money and I wanted stuff. You that's know, I every, think, everybody, every, every great entrepreneur, <laughs> yeah. that's the same story. You know, like we didn't have, I didn't have stuff. And I felt like part of the reason I was being rejected, which actually really wasn't, was that I didn't have the stuff that the cool kids had. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I'm such a hater on AirPods. Yeah. No, just kidding. Maybe <laughs> me too. That might be no, why. Can, yeah. That's I, like, no, that's, that's not true. I can have AirPods if I want and I still don't. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, and so I was, I babysat, I worked as soon as I was able and was always had some kind of hustle going on, um, and, and cut grass, uh, when I was in sixth grade and then realized I could sell more jobs than I wanted to do. And then hired some other, the neighbor kids to help cut the grass. And then I was like taking a P taking a commission and, but they were making great money more than like double minimum wage. And then, you know, built a little landscaping business, but not because I was like, I want to be in business. It was like, I want Doc Martens. Yeah. I wanted Jordans. I yeah. feel so hard. Yeah. My mom was like, the Velcro shoes will work. And I was like, nope, mom, yeah. the eights just came out. I got to have them. Yeah. She said, figure it out. And I was like, you know, cause being poor can, especially in high school is like so humiliating. Like being poor is humiliating anyway for so many different reasons. But, um, you know, it's especially hard when, you know, when kids are so mean. And so I just always had to hustle. So I think it wasn't business at first, I think. Um, and when I got out, I moved to Columbus. I looked at Ohio State Georgetown, looked at apartments and was like, fuck it, I'm moving to Columbus, Ohio. You know, and some of my friends were like, well, T, you don't know anybody in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm like, it's not war. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, so I just, I got a job at Max Cafe serving. And just was like, okay, I got to support myself. So I didn't have, and never really had, and still wouldn't say I have like this grand vision for my life. I just felt like I need to be independent, support myself and grind through school. And then, you know, from there I can figure out my path. And, and, you know, over the years, I think that my perspective, cause I think some people have their whole life planned out. And I have never been one of those people. Other people have had plans for my life, but not, you know, not, <laughs> I've not, not thought about it in that way. And I've always just thought if I'm making forward progress, then I'm good. Like, am I learning something? Am I supporting myself? Cause it's actually like a pretty big achievement when you're, you know, 22, 23, 24 to just support yourself and not need anybody else to kind of navigate the world. Cause then you can decide for yourself what kind of life you want to have. So just, you know, I was just serving and then got another serving job. I've always been a worker and always been a reader and ended up getting a fellowship, lived in Damascus in Syria for a couple of years and then came back. And that's when I sort of stepped into business. But it wasn't this like intent of like, I'm going to be a great entrepreneur. And sort of this cult of celebrity entrepreneurs didn't really exist back then. Like, you know, this is around the the dot-com boom and bubble that, you know, just completely imploded. And, um, and even then it was all straight white dudes in tech and not kind of this narrative of the kind of cult of celebrity entrepreneurs that we see now across consumer goods and luggage and 
rent the runway. And, you know, so there's a lot more, I think, women and no, not as many people of color as I would hope to see. Um, but it's it's got a broader spectrum of people that, you know, that people can sort of dream about and aspire to than, than back in the early 2000s, for sure. So, you know, you step into that, and you said it wasn't like going to be an entrepreneurial thing. It was just the way that your mind thought and the way that you were kind of going, you said, okay, I got to do something. I got to do something different. What really triggered you to make that leap into entrepreneurship the first time? Yeah. So when I got back from Syria, I was in my quarter life crisis. I just felt, I left the Middle East. I was doing work in human rights and I felt like there are human rights issues and women's rights issues in, in Columbus and in my own, you know, in my own country and in my own, uh, like, you know, I would, I would argue that we still don't have equality for black and brown people in this country. So there's a lot of work to do. So I didn't, had to reflect on why I was still in the Middle East. So I came back and I was washing dishes at Tip Top uh, down on Gay Street and had books on my iPod and was listening to a book a day and was also doing some bartending and freelance writing. And I ended up doing some freelance writing for some guys that had an affiliate marketing company. And I thought, huh. And at the time I perceived they were making a a lot of money. Um, Now I realize that wasn't that much money, but um, at the time I thought that was pretty cool. And so I was just doing, you know, content for them and ended up just studying what is affiliate marketing and how does it work? And then I started tinkering on my own. And I remember telling one of these dudes who I see around town from time to time, which is extremely satisfying for me, um, hey, I'm making 50 cents a day. And that's actually a big deal because statistically very, very few websites on the internet make any money. And he's like, he was so dismissive. And I was like, no, I think I can scale this up. And so I did. I, then I was making $5 a day. And then I was making $50 a day. And then I retired from the restaurant industry at the time. And because um, affiliate marketing at the time was not as hard as it is now, um, but it's still just doing math by yourself. It's a math game. And, um, but really, you know, built like a fun little portfolio. I had, um, a site called, um, culinary miracle, which is still probably one of my favorite things I've ever built. Um, it's all about crock pot cooking because <laughs> the, the premise was like, you put like meat and shit in a crock pot. And then eight hours later you have a fucking meal. It's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a miracle. That's I've like my, never been able to make that's my fiance's favorite miracle. Though. She loves the crock pot, man. I have an instant pot and I cannot make that thing work. It's the opposite of a miracle for me. I put it in there and it, it's just trash at the end. Oh no! So there's you can do I'm, like risotto in an instant pot, uh, and it takes twenty minutes. It's amazing. You can, I well, cannot. There's no, something. I'm married well. That's. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel that that um, are you the type of person that when you're told you can't do something, then makes it that? Oh, negative motivation yeah. for me is like so powerful. I mean, it's kind of a commentary on the parents I have, but um, yeah. I mean, if 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 so, if you said to me right now, T, you can't do a hundred push-ups, even though I like that's not really in me. I would find a way, <laughs> Yep. <laughs> but yeah, like negative motivation is extremely, extremely powerful. For me. It's something I can't turn off either. No matter how uh, woke I get or understanding right. or patient, you tell me I can't do something. I'm doing it, which makes <laughs> me like the worst employee ever. So why, again, why I think it's good that I got myself into business building. So, so I did affiliate marketing for a while and then I got tired of doing math by myself so mm-hmm. built like a great little passive income business and was just like, you know, I really want to do something that connects to customers because I'm so fascinated by behavioral economics and like what makes people choose stuff, the stuff they do. So at the time, some of my collaborators were talking about this company out of Chicago called Groupon. And Groupon was, is now a penny stock, but at the time was like a daily deal site. They were only in two cities and they were offering these amazing deals to all these local businesses. And I looked at their business and I thought, you know, I don't get it. Like the teeth whitening, the tanning, the yoga. But I think there's a real opportunity because people have multiple loyalties to restaurants. You can only have one dentist, right? And and so that from that kind of came the idea for Fuda, which was actually the first daily deal site in Columbus. We only worked with locally owned independent restaurants. Our deals were only good during the week, like Sunday through Thursday on their slow days. And for every certificate we sold, we gave a dollar to the food bank. Because the idea was we help our community find great independent restaurants that we vetted. And so we really tried to curate the list. It wasn't just that any restaurant could sign up with us. And in doing so, they help the most vulnerable people in our community eat. And it was a great, great little business. 
there are two big lessons in FUDA. One is a lot of people think that to build a business, you have to invent something. And invention and innovation are not the same thing. But I think a lot of people confuse invention and innovation. So, you know, FUDA was really just an iteration. Like it, it wasn't even an, an innovation on the model. Like we didn't create new tech. We just said, I don't get teeth whitening and tanning. We want to curate this. And sometimes there are business models that exist and people refine it, clean it up and curate, and it becomes something huge when people are like, well, I had that idea 10 years ago, but it just didn't resonate in a meaningful way. So that was thing one. And thing two is that any business can do good in the community. Like it, it wasn't like the, it wasn't like the underlying purpose, but it was just like, we can do this great thing and help other people. Mm-hmm. And I think people get fixated on social enterprise, uh, where it's, that that has to be the central focus of the business is that you have to you have to do good and and I think sometimes you just have to have a great business with solid mechanics and margin and then you can do good things. Um, so that was kind of a really interesting thing. But I sold Fuda after 14 months in business because barrier to entry from a tech standpoint was extremely low. So people were di- like downloading WordPress themes basically. And, you know, as, and I could tell when there were like four people a week calling on my partners who were super loyal, they were starting to get fatigued already. And then that just ramped up and then, you know, it's four people a day. Mm-hmm. So it's the second I saw that in the wind, I talked to a local media company, they ended up purchasing Fuda, but then it was wound down maybe six months later because there was just so much saturation in the market. What year was that? Uh, I started FUDA in 2010 and, uh, and so we were done in 20, 2011. It's still really at the beginning of that, that phase of yeah. the internet. Hey there, Conquerors. We want to take a quick moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Studio 301. Kyle and his team have helped us redesign our website, taking the podcast in a new direction that we truly love. And we have some incredible guests here on the show. And Studio 301 has given us a website that reflects the caliber of the people that join us. And the Studio 301 team can help you with everything from brand strategy and redesigns to market research, videography, social media overhauls, and a whole lot more. You can go check them out at studio301.org. That's studio301.org. When did you learn to develop websites? I didn't. But I'm really good at math. I feel like we skipped over that part because you said, wait, I built a website. And I said, well, wait a minute. I mean, you know, there's enough on the Internet that if you Mm -hmm. are curious and know math, I mean, like as a math and language person, that's what coding is. So I know I know enough to be dangerous. Over the years, I've often had a technical co-founder because these days, you know, and even back then I could find a dude that's like been who's been coding for a decade and he's 22 years old. Mm -hmm. And, And I never felt like it was worth it for me to try to catch up. Um, but I knew enough, like from my affiliate marketing to kind of put all the pieces together. And even like with wonder, I built our e-commerce website. It's like Shopify and, you know, just, but it's, I know enough to be, to be dangerous and to make things work, but certainly know when to call in the experts as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. I mean, have you ever had one of those ideas? You know, everybody says, I thought about that before and you didn't act on it. Have you ever had one of those ideas that you wish you would have acted on or you saw it come up and you're like, damn, that was, I should have done that. I think, I mean, I had like, I was a little early on memes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was like, I can has cheeseburger mm-hmm. and I had two, um, little side projects. They were, they never generated revenue. One was called not my secrets, which I'm thinking about reviving in the current era. Cause I think it would do well, but, um, basically not my secrets. Like anyone could upload someone else's secret and it was, we created like they could add a font and put text over, but they, it had to be anonymous. So they had to use like kind of a general generic photo, but the content was just so funny. It was so brilliant. And, and then we also did one called poor sports with a Z and, um, poor sports basically was you had like athletes making funny faces and people could put text over them. So it was like now called memes, yeah, but there wasn't a word for them at the time and kind of just shelved those because couldn't make any money. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I've always had to feed myself on my wits. Um, so I would say that was just a bit early. And then the other was, um, like on group video chat before that was really like, you know, there was Skype and there was nothing to really bring groups together and actually started that company. But, um, Google launched hangouts probably a month before we were going to launch. We were just like, 
Fuck it. Just kidding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get that. Nope. <laughs> we, uh, we, I, I had a clothing company for a long time and we, we, for some reason, the idea of a subscription box, just, I mean, you worked mm-hmm. in apparel, you know, the massive inventory you have to have and yep. the overhead and we made everything in the U S and there was just always, how do we solve this problem of continuing the quality that we promised without, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars of just products sitting still that we don't know, guessing what size, I mean, yeah. I could get into infinite time of talking about that, but we were like, how can we circumvent this in the subscription box? which it wasn't called that at the time. It was yeah. like, what if we had people sign up ahead of time? You know, yeah. so we already know their size. And I took it to some people who I respected and they were just like, no, no, no. And yeah. this is pre, you know, bespoke and all these companies. We actually, we eventually five years later went in on it and had three years of success with that. But we were so far behind everybody else that yeah. we missed it. And that like, it doesn't keep me up at night anymore, but I'm just like, you fucked up. Like, you know, like yeah. uh, every now and then it pops back up. Like when I see an ad or listen to an ad and I'm like, man, I should have acted on that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, some it's just, and, and, and I think that's a great point though, overall that like, there's so much luck in timing, mm-hmm. so much luck in timing in any business. I mean, it's, it's really fucking crazy. I mean, even like with, with print syndicate, which, which we, we can dive into if we try, if I try to launch that company now, we, it wouldn't work mm-hmm. and it's work. I mean, it's working and they're, it's doing amazing thing things, but I think, Timing, especially anything that's consumer facing is really powerful. I mean, you know, a friend of mine has a, an amazing um, tech startup that's diving into commercial insurance. And like one of the big value propositions is that the, the, the agents don't have to fax shit in anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you look for like really old dinosaur shit, you can still, and timing is maybe less important, um, but, you know, but then the adoption piece is hard. So it's still crazy that anybody has a fax machine in the world anywhere. I know. Somebody I'm asked stunned. me to fax something recently and yeah. I, like, I was, I was, people angry. still ask, people still ask here at FMX for our fax number from the sales team. And I just tell them, ask them what they're talking about. I don't know what that is. Like, I just say no. Thanks. I know. I was no, trying we to don't get, have a fax. I was trying to get cable activated literally two days ago. And and her add-on, her pitch to me for doing the add-on for next 10 bucks, I could have a phone line so people could, could fax me. I said, if, if you fax me, I'm going to charge you. Yeah. <laughs> I swear <laughs> on my life. I'm not, I don't need the phone line. I had to go to yeah. Chase to get checks the other day, and, yeah. it, and it angered me. I asked, I was like, how is this such a difficult process? Like, they can't ship them to me. They can't, there was like, you have to come here and we can only give them to you in sheets of three and they're $2. You and I was can, like, there's no way this is the easiest. There is a website called CheckKeeper. Mm-hmm. And you can print checks on normal paper. Okay. You just put in your account info. If someone or, else's account would be nice. I could use that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just that, start guessing numbers. Congress, yeah, Congress Columbus can, does not sponsor this message. <laughs> nope. Do not um, print other people's checks. But you can checks. also buy the like official checks on Amazon and then print checks on using CheckKeeper like for the template and then carry on with your life. All right. Well, this is good you to know. Have to, if you have to write a fucking physical check. Yeah. Which, which, yeah. What is it? 1985? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> so you're jumping from opportunity to opportunity and, and you like the vibe that I get from right now and every other time I've heard you talk is that you're very, seems very serendipitous and doesn't seem like you stress a lot about the future. You're just really in the moment and you're curious, passionate about learning, at least the vibe I get. So as you're going and you're identifying these different problems and stuff, how have you identified the problem and how have you chosen which one you want to continue to pursue and put all yourself into so you're not spread too thin? Yeah, I think, I mean, what I've learned over the years is it's really fucking hard to build a business, even if you love it and even, you know, and even if you're super into it and it's a fucking slog. I mean, it really, it's painful and brutal and it's like breaking rocks in the hot sun and then maybe, maybe you will make enough money to feed yourself. And so when I'm in between companies, people are like, T, what are you going to do next? You know, like, what about this? And I just have realized that to have the energy and the stamina, because it takes a lot of stamina to build a thing, it's really about what is the thing I can't not put down, right? Like, it's the thing that I have to do, that I have to. And that like really captivates me in a way that I just have to do it. And even then it's grueling (laughs) and even then it's fucking miserable. But, you know, when it's just, I mean, I had a great job as the chief disruption officer at BrewDog, like just looking at, okay, let's assume the things that we're doing today aren't going to work in the future, you know, because people forget that the iPhone is 12 years old. Mm. And so 12 years from now, 
like what will the world even be? It's, it's fun to speculate. And I love science fiction for that reason. Mm -hmm. And if you read science fiction, you would be well prepared for the COVID-19 pandemic or any pandemic. And so for all the people who made fun of me for all these years for being a prepper, <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> but I, but back to business and mostly that I'm talking to my wife directly on that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that sounded very, very direct. Very No, actually uh, Mormons are hardcore preppers. Like my parents have like a year's supply of food in their garage. Anyway. So I think that that's the key is just, you know, so I try to think about, I mean, a lot of the ideas that I have turned into businesses are things that either really frustrate me, like Ticket Fire, where it's just like, oh my God, other people besides me are probably experiencing this frustration. And then, then they follow on questions, can I make money solving for this? Um, and, and then I think it's just stuff that I feel like there's a gap in the market. And, you know, with Print Syndicate, there was kind of, it was, it's kind of back to the tribes on the internet. We saw this huge opening of these tribes convening and generating and engaging with content on this like amazing level and sharing memes and, 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 and trying themselves to turn them into products on cafe press and Zazzle. And the reality of the world is like, despite what people's mothers say, no, not everyone is an artist. And so we hired professional designers to create phenomenal content that really resonated with these social identities that no one in the world was making products for. And if you had gone to an investor, which we did, and said, we're going to make t-shirts for introverts and cat ladies and alien believers, and we're going to sell millions of dollars worth of stuff, they would be like, t-shirts, like, really? I can get t-shirts for, you know, I could take a dollar to the thrift store and come out with t-shirts. Mm -hmm. But there was, in fact, Blue Ocean there, which was, and for me, the center, so we sold $40 million worth of stuff direct to consumer in our first four years. But the center of the universe of, of Look Human and, and Activate Apparel and America Made is about self-expression for social identities that were unserved or are unserved when it comes to product. So, you know, we have a team of brilliant designers who are just making new stuff every single day based on what the chatter is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that that really was powerful for me because as a weird kid and now as a weird grown up, I, I didn't feel like there were products that I would, or objects that I would put on my body that said, you know, that said exactly who I am, you know? And when we had like one of our early bestsellers was introverts unite, we're here, we're uncomfortable and we want to go home. And we sold tens of thousands, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I think people are at a point now where they feel comfortable enough to put an object on their bodies. And it says something that maybe you don't get, but if you're one of my people, you, mm -hmm. we can do this head nod acknowledgement that you get this joke. And, um, so that's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Right. That connection of when you instantly know, okay, we're on the same team. Like mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. I think that's really rare these days Yeah, for at least for me, but when you get it, it's just, I don't know. You just feel home. Yeah. I, I love that. And it's something that you don't think. So like, even when you're wearing clothing that isn't branded or designed, like you're still, projecting a community of belong that you belong to, right? 100%. And, like it's yeah. like your clothing says so much about who you are and yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, whatever objects you have on your body indicate a lot or, or, or you're trying to indicate and say some stuff about yourself. Or they and may con convey a message that you don't realize that you're- yeah. Right. I, I went through a, a this, I won't, it was a stupid training thing, like an emotional training. I did, I hated the entire thing, but I took some good stuff away from it. And there was this, the teacher or whatever told me, uh, there is no war. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And he's like, your face looks like you're ready for battle. He's like, so people are like uh, intimidated by you. And I was like, well, I don't mean that. I want them to be my friend. And he was like, yeah, but you look like, it's like basically the male version of like resting bitch face. And so yeah. that, and like the whole thing was, was a pretty big scam, I think. But the, that, like what he told me resonated and I was able to take that and be like, wow, you might be in this area. Like when I'm walking to the grocery store and listen to a podcast, like somebody might be like, like I have my headphones in my yeah. head down and I'm walking. They're like, man, look at that guy. He's like too cool or whatever. But I'm like in that zone. So I try to, and I'm not always succeeding at that, but like take that and, and be able to let people know, like, I'm not what you may think that, you know, it's just like being mindful of that. Yeah. And I think yeah. that your apparel can definitely do that. Like you can give a message that you're intending to give, or you could also come across as, you know, potentially an asshole or part of a crew that you might not. Yeah. Be. I mean, and some of them were like overtly meant to, um, push people away. Like one said, mm -hmm. I'm not always a bitch. Just kidding. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. <and laughs> it's also like, a good seller hilariously. So <laughs> Do you feel like you're, I, I just listening to you talk about how you, you know, kind of the scratch your own itch, 
But when you were saying, you know, you're, when you start a new, what's next for me, it's what can I not set down? What, what can't keep my hands off of? Do you feel that that, or have you noticed that that blurs the line between hobby and business? Do you try to turn everything into a business? No, I don't. I mean, I think that there are, I think that some people don't see the distinction between hobby and business. And that's where, um, I think, which is super unrealistic. I think like I a hundred percent believe businesses should make money. Mm -hmm. And as my chosen course of life as an entrepreneur and the kind of quality of life I want, I need my businesses to make a lot of money. And so, you know, like there's things I do for fun that are for, to relax. And that's not something I would ever turn into a business. I think that it's important that whatever business I build really resonates with my values and my personal kind of experience because, um, you know, it's like when a couple of management consultant dudes launch a women's fashion brand. I don't, you know, even though they, they can, it can be slick and they can do it well. I think there's no soul to that business. Absolutely. And so I think for me, it's important that, that there's alignment between who I am and the stuff I build. What you have going on today, you want to just give people an overview. We talked about in the intro, obviously, but like where the idea come about and, and you decided to make the jump and where are we at today? Yeah. So when I was, when my job was to think about what's going to take down beer, um, you know, you think about, hard seltzer, craft beer and beer in general didn't see White Claw coming. And it's had a, a profound impact, negative impact on the beer industry. And so I really thought about like, well, what's the next thing? I think ready to drink cocktails like mm -hmm. high end are coming for us. And I think that the cannabis beverage industry is going to make a, is going to be bigger than craft beer in a more compressed time frame. So it took craft beer kind of 30 years to be what it is, maybe 40 now. And you know, on, on two sides. So there's, you know, there's the CBD side of cannabis and then the THC side of cannabis. And I think that on the CBD side, there's a lot of people that are experiencing benefits physically and emotionally um, and relief from consuming CBD. And then on the THC side, I think there's a huge opportunity for a low dose sort of social beverage. And when I looked at the space, I think that there's, uh, that the vast majority of the market is really for the cannabis curious, but a lot of the products out there are for highly experienced cannabis users that know all about CBD or know all about THC and, um, and then the doses and kind of how those brands, um, roll, uh, is, is very reflective of that. And so, you know, I think there are big challenges with consumer education. I think there's big challenges with transparency, at least on the CBD side, people are like bootlegging shit in their bathtub. And, uh, and then on the THC side, I think that the potency is really, really fucking high for normal people that, um, maybe don't want to smoke weed, don't want to, you know, don't know what a dab rig is, um, or whatever, right. And are pretty overwhelmed and want, you know, but it's like, I, I have a vision of like a cannabis, a THC beverage where you go to a party, you bring a four pack, somebody's like, oh, I'll try one. And it's like having a beer mm -hmm. um, or a glass of wine. So people sort of know what to expect and can calibrate that experience. But that's not sort of what's in the market right now. That sounds so, awesome. Yeah. I would be all about that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, no hangover with THC, mm -hmm. which is nice. So, you know, I think, you know, it's kind of, it's been interesting because there's, there's no real front runner in the market. So there's no one that's decided that this is what a cannabis beverage either on the CBD or THC side is going to look like or taste like. Um, so there's sort of a few buckets. There's like the LaCroix tasting with CBD in them uh, kind of category, which is most of them. There's some that kind of went the soda route. And then with Wonder, we went for something a little bit more grown up and subtle. You know, people are like, oh, well, who's your customer? And I'm like, well, it's a psychographic of people that believe in plant-based wellness and I would say if I were to pick a demographic, I would say grown ass people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's the legality on a THC beverage currently in Ohio? So um, no THC uh, beverages could like don't exist in Ohio as far as I know, pretty much out in California mm -hmm. um, because production licenses and all that stuff is pretty complicated. Um, but uh, in Ohio, they would have to go through a dispensary. Um, mm -hmm. CBD is legal in all 50 states and people can buy CBD online and in and, and normal stores. But there's still a big problem with CBD because the FDA has not given clarity on how it's regulated, mm -hmm. which means you don't know the potency. There might actually be marijuana in it. There's, you know, there might be other harmful shit. People are buying cheap CBD from China. Yeah. And so we try to, we're trying to really lead the market in um, transparency by, I mean, we get our CBD from Colorado, but we're 
publish our third-party batch test results and all that. But I mean, the idea behind Wonder is really something that, because the other the other big challenge with CBD is people are like, well, how's it going to make me feel? And what is it going to do? And am I going to get high? And so we added vitamins and adaptogens and created four unique formulations to give people kind of context to the use cases. Um, so we have Breakfast Club, which has got B12, L-tyrosine, and ginseng. It's blood orange, mint, and ginger, so it's really nice citrus for the morning. So it's kind of an energy boost that really pairs well with 20 milligrams of CBD. I like or, that one a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or on the other end of the spectrum, we have Night Moves, which has got chamomile and ashwagandha for deep relaxation. And then also, you know, is, is supplemented by 20 milligrams of, of CBD. So, you know, and then we have Born to Run for recovery and we have Fast Times for focus. It's like kind of my afternoon productivity push. But yeah, we I think we we worked really hard on the flavors and I worked with chefs, um, some chef friends of mine who, who helped weigh in and put together something that's really subtle and... But then they also make great mixers with alcohol, which is awesome if you are into that, but are, are phenomenal on standalone. And and so, you know, it's been fun to kind of flex my creativity. I mean, BrewDog was a phenomenal experience, but the brand has already been decided. And so to kind of come up with a brand that I feel like is more uh, approachable and more accessible for a broader base of consumers is something that I really, I'm really proud of. So, and what are your goals for the brand? You know, move forward next three, five years, where do you see? Oh, well, I think, um, it's kind of a two parter. So these days in all the stuff I build, we have a social kind of mission. And the first part of the social mission is that I, I deeply believe that community impact starts with how you treat your people. So one, you know, paying people living wages, making sure they have high quality, affordable benefits. And in the current environment, we have to be more thoughtful about how we put our team together. But, you know, but just being, uh, but taking great care of your people. I get really pissed about CEOs that collect awards or awards for philanthropy and pay their people minimum wage. So I think that's thing one is just to build a great business. I mean, over the next three to five years, it's going to just be a fucking slog in the mud where we're going to try to sell more cases next week than we did the week before. And if we can keep slogging, I mean, my vision is that we got to plant a lot of seeds over the next 18 months. And thankfully we're teeny. Again, that luck and timing thing, we had launched six weeks before Corona kind of really hit. And thankfully it was like me and one dude. And so now we're just hustling in the streets. We're going to add another person or two to the team as we start to slowly expand ge geographically. Um, but I think about if we had launched a year ago and we were in the fray of hype or growth mode and spending a lot of money and building out a team, it would be really brutal right now. So thankfully we are tiny. And so with that, that tiny little base, we have a lot of opportunities to grow. But the other big goal for me is we have something, as I looked at the cannabis industry, a whole bunch of already wealthy straight white dudes are going to make and are making billions while the OG entrepreneurs, specifically black and brown people are in prison and communities, black and brown communities, have been destroyed by the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Now, thankfully, some states that are legalizing cannabis are setting aside licenses, expunging records, vacating convictions, doing all the right things. But the data says if, uh, if you're a black or brown person or a woman, it's going to be really fucking hard to raise capital for your business. <laughs> Any kind of business, like your fucking cupcake shop, mm -hmm. Not, never mind a cannabis business. And so while some states are trying to do the right thing, I think... You know, as I reflect on tech startups or, you know, pick an industry, tech startups, coffee, AI, wine, black and brown people have been excluded from the upside of all of it. But if there's one industry where we have to wage full-blown war for equity mm -hmm. for black and brown people, it has to be cannabis because lives and communities have been ruined by this shit for a long time. So we ha wonder have something called the 420 rule where we're going to take, if you don't know what 420 means, Go look it up. <laughs> okay, a simple Google search. <laughs> some, people like, some people were like, what's that mean? And I, I, I don't know. Um, but um, we're going to take 4.20% of our profits and reinvest them in entrepreneurs that come from communities that have been disproportionately harmed by the prohibition of cannabis. And so my long-term vision is that Wonder is an amazing company to work for, an amazing brand that really positively impacts people's lives. And that it is a lever and a mechanism to really instigate change and instigate equity in the cannabis industry. So that would be like, in, if all my hopes and dreams came true, that's what wonder would be. Cause I think that, you know, as I've 
gotten older and had more experiences as an entrepreneur, there's kind of further and further alignment in terms of who I am and how I live my life and the companies I build. And, and, and so they're much tighter and closer together. I think Print Syndicate was like kind of a really big step towards that. Um, around this idea of belonging and 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 how important that is, like for belonging for weirdos, to now really talking about social justice. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it really is awesome, and it's excited to see where Wonder's going, and uh, we look forward to following along. But I think it's a good place to pivot towards our last question of the show, centered around the theme here on the Conquering Columbus podcast, and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, um, my therapist says I'm addicted to stress. And um, so I think I'm used to that uh, discomfort of, and I think especially now, uncertainty. Um, you know, I actually spend a lot of time re- reflecting on, like, what is it that I'm feeling in these very, very weird times? And, and trying to articulate that. I think it's important to sort of wrap your mind around how, to, how do you actually feel, Right. Versus like, this sucks. And, you know, I want to go to the bar and whatever, Mm -hmm. but really, and for me, it's a lot of disappointment over kind of this perceived momentum and, and that now I have to learn a very intense exercise in patience, um, in what I had hoped would be. And then, and then also I think a lot of feelings of grief around that the world is really, really, really different and not necessarily in positive ways. And, and so the sense of loss around the, th- the world and the kind of structures that I thought that I knew. And so that's really, really uncomfortable and really painful. But I, I think for me, I, I'm going to keep doing what I always do, which is grinding and hustling in the streets and um, and trying to make forward progress in in whatever the new version of the world is, and I think that kind of in the younger version of myself and and that approach to just you know because a lot of folks are like you're an army vet and you're a fucking server in a bar or when I came back from Syria and I'm washing dishes, like I never felt bad about myself in those contexts. I was independent and supporting myself and 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 learning a lot and making forward progress. And I think if I can continue. I'll be 39 in a couple months to make forward progress. I think I'll be better and hopefully more evolved person every month or every year. Um, then, you know, I, I continue to look forward to that version of the future. Great answer, T. And yeah, I think just take it uh, step by step at a time and keep moving forward. But we really appreciate you taking your time to share your story and talk with us here on the podcast. So thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Good to hang with you guys yeah, from, from, um, from 10 feet away. <laughs> there you <Yeah>. go. And <laughs> Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.